You're listening to the Qalam Institute podcast series, Sira, Life of the Prophet, by Sheikh Abdul Nasser Jangda. Qalam is pleased to announce the Sira Intensive, a two-week program studying the life of the Prophet, peace be upon him. Visit sirahintensive.com for more information. Bismillahi wa alhamdulillah wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillahi wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Inshallah, continuing with our series on the life of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, Asiratul Nabawiya, the prophetic biography. In the previous session, we talked about the um, events leading up to the Battle of Badr. And specifically what we talked about, or rather in the last few couple of sessions, we've talked about the events leading up to the Battle of Badr. In the previous session, we talked about now the message reaching Mecca, that this uh, conflict is basically looking to you know, uh, happen. Uh, where there's the caravan of Abu Sufyan and now the Muslims have become aware of this and even started to make preparations to go and intercept the caravan. So based off of this, the word reaches back to Mecca and the Meccans start making their preparations. So we talked a little bit about how um, there's this overall you know, panic in Mecca and kind of a, a type of propaganda, if you will, in Mecca to really incite the Meccans and get everybody to uh, come and, and join into the cause. One of the last things I was talking about there at the end where we had to wrap up, I uh, didn't realize about the time of Salatul Isha moving forward. Um, so I won't recap the whole thing, but just to mention it specifically, because it's very profound, it's very powerful. Umayyah bin Khalaf, who was one of the leaders of the Quraysh, and this is somebody who had a very contentious relationship with Islam, with the Muslims, with the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Um, and in the course of that contentious relationship, basically, uh, there was an incident where one of the uh, Medinan companions, one of the Ansari, uh, Sahaba radiallahu ta'ala anhum, he told him that the Prophet ﷺ has said specifically about you that you will basically die at the hands of the Prophet ﷺ. And he was really afraid, he panicked, um, and so he didn't want to go for Badr when they started making preparations to go. And not one, but multiple people were shaming him for not going, and they eventually, even Abu Jahal goes to his home and pressures him into coming along with them. And I was talking about how this is narrated by Imam Ahmad in his Musnad, and it's an authentic narration, it's authenticated, that when he got to the point where you know his own friends like Abu Jahal and everybody else in Mecca was basically shaming him for not going. He started making preparations and he started leaving his home. And when he told his wife, his wife's like, where are you going? And he said, I'm going to uh, the, the, the battle against the Prophet ﷺ. His wife was not a Muslim either. She said to him, Wallahi inna Muhammadan la yakdib. She said, I swear to God, you know that Muhammad does not lie. You know that Muhammad doesn't lie, so think twice before you go. Nevertheless, he ended up going, and as we'll talk about later, he, that is exactly where he met, his, uh, he met his end. The last thing I wanted to talk about, so today primarily we're going to be talking about the preparations on the Muslim side. How the Muslims prepared and gathered together and set out for what became the Battle of Badr. But the last detail that I wanted to mention on the Meccan side, the, the, the side of the, the Mushrikun of Mecca, the Quraysh, the last thing was that Quraysh had a little bit of a problem. So I had, I've talked about this in the previous sessions, how they basically put an army together. And this army included all of, their, uh, all of their horses, all of their camels, all of their men who were capable of fighting, all their weapons. They took everything. And we'll talk about some of the numbers that they had specifically in just a minute. Um, but 
Based on that fact, if they ended up going to the Battle of Badr in the type of force that they were going in, the consequence of that is that Makkah would be left defenseless. Makkah would remain defenseless. And so the reason why that was a concern of leaving Makkah defenseless, aside from just a common concern of what if something happens, but there was actually something in particular, there was something specific. And that was that the Makkans, the Quraysh, had, a, had an outstanding conflict um, between them, between the Quraysh and Banu, Banu Bikr. Uh, um, so Banu Bikr, the, what ended up happening with them was that previously, uh, some time back, there was a man from the Quraysh. He was the son of uh, he was the son of Hafs bin Akhyaf. One of the sons of Hafs bin Akhyaf was killed by a man. He was basically killed by a man from Banu Bikr. And one of the leaders of Banu Bikr had sent this man, like an assassin, had hired him to go and kill the sons of one of the leaders of Quraysh. It was probably a personal conflict, but he ended up doing that. Now what happened in retaliation for that was that the brother of the murdered person, the brother of the one who, was, who had been assassinated, he goes by night, slips into Banu Bikr, right, where they live, Diyaru Banu Bikr, he slips into their homes, their neighborhood, and he finds the leader of their tribe who had taken the hit out on his brother. The one who had hired the assassin to kill his brother. And he goes and he kills him with his sword. And then he brings the bloody sword back to Mecca and he hangs it from the Kaaba. So to show that, you know, vengeance uh, uh, has been achieved. Like we've, we've gotten our revenge. And that whole incident and the retaliation and then the celebration of the retaliation by hanging the sword in the Kaaba had established a long-standing conflict between the Quraysh and Banu Bikr. So this problem was there, all right? Now, the reason why they were afraid now to go for the Battle of Badr and take everything and anyone that they could take was that this would leave Mecca vulnerable to attack from Banu Bikr. So they were sitting and talking after all the initial, you know, panic and hype and everything. When that kind of all faded away, they said, but wait a second, what are we going to do about Banu Bikr? So they sat down and they were having a meeting about this. And that's where the narrations tell us that uh, Ibn Ishaq mentions this narration. Ibn Hisham also mentions this in his seerah as well. It's narrated by Urwat ibn Zubayr radiallahu ta'ala anhu Lama ajma'at Quraysh al-Masira dhakratil ladhi baynaha wa bayna Bani Bikr That once they started to get together to go, they said, well, what are we going to do about Banu Bikr? Fakada thalika an yathniyahum This was very close to making them reconsider their decision to go out and fight the Muslims. This was making them reconsider their position. And while they were there starting to reconsider their position to go out and fight in what became Badr, Iblis, Shaitan comes to them, and the narration says that Fi Surati Suraqat ibn Malik bin Ju'asham al-Mudlaji, he comes in the form of a leader of another tribe, Suraqa bin Malik. If you remember the name Suraqa bin Malik, this was the man who had pursued the Prophet Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu when they were migrating from Makkah to Medina, and his was the horse that kept kind of sinking into the into the sand until finally he promised the Prophet he would not pursue them, and the earth released his horse. 
Um, and the Prophet ﷺ told him to come to Medina and uh, meet me over there once I've reached Medina. And the books of Sirah actually tell us that he does come to Medina later and becomes a Muslim. He accepts Islam. Nevertheless, Shaitan, because he's a leader of another tribe outside of Mecca, so Shaitan knows that he's not there, he's not around. So Shaitan takes the form of this particular leader, um, Suraqa bin Malik, and he comes, shows up in the meeting. He was a leader of Banu Kinana. And he says, So I personally will take responsibility. I will grant you protection. Because Banu Bikr was basically a family from the larger tribe of Banu Kinana. So he says, look, I'm related to the people that y'all have a problem with. I'm related to the people that y'all have beef with. I personally will take responsibility that they will not come and attack Makkah. I'll guarantee it on my behalf. And see, that guarantee from a leader was a very big deal back in those days. Ijar, right, granting that protection to somebody was, was the law, was part of tribal law. So they respected it a lot. So once they got this word, Shaitan basically lied to them. Then they were satisfied and they said, okay, let's get going. And um, Ibn Kathir rahimahullah ta'ala in his tafsir mentions this incident as, the, uh, as a reference or as an explanation of the ayats from Suratul Anfal. And we know Suratul Anfal is regarding the Battle of Badr. In ayah number 47 and 48 of Suratul Anfal, Allah says, that do not be like those people who left their homes, who went out, you know, uh, proudly and to show off to the people their strength. And they went out to prevent people from the path of Allah, from believing and worshiping Allah. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is completely in con- uh, surrounding, meaning Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is keeping tabs on everything that they are doing. وَإِذْ زَيَّنَ لَهُمْ الشَّيْطَانُ أَعْمَالَهُمْ That, remember when shaitan basically beautified their actions for them, meaning shaitan lied to them, he placated them. وَقَالَ لَا غَالِبَ لَكُمُ الْيَوْمَ مِنَ النَّاسِ وَإِنِّي جَارُ لَكُمْ He said, nobody will beat you, nobody will harm you today, and I will grant you protection. فَلَمَّا تَرَاءَتِ الْفِئَتَانُ when the two armies faced off and the two armies saw one another in the battlefield, Nakasa ala aqibehi. Shaitan turned around on his heels and he ran from the battlefield. Waqala inni bari ummink minkum. He said that I have nothing to do with y'all. Inni arama la taron. I see what you do not see. Inni akhafullah. I fear Allah. Wallahu shadidul iqab. Because if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chooses to punish somebody, he is very severe in his punishment. And there's another ayah as well, where it talks about the same thing. Surah Al-Hashr, uh, ayah number, Surah 59, ayah number 16, that the example is of the shaitan when he says to the human being, disbelieve, be ungrateful, disbelieve. 
فَلَمَّا كَفَرْ When that person does disbelief, قَالَ إِنِّي بَرِئُمْ مِنْكِ He says, I have nothing to do with you. إِنِّي أَخَافُ اللَّهَ رَبِّ الْعَالَمِينَ I fear Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala who is the Lord, the Master of all people. And so, shaitan, now this ayah, these ayats help to finish the rest of the story. So shaitan shows up in their meeting when they're worried about some enemies. He lies to them, falsely gives them some guarantee of protection and safety. And then the narration mentions that um, Shaitan departed with them. He joined the army of the Quraysh and he traveled with them. Every single stop that they made, Shaitan was with them. Until they finally reached the place of Badr. And when they stood in the battlefield and he saw the angels descending down from the heavens. Because shaitan can see the angels descending down from the heavens. When he saw the angels there, he and wa'ayina Jibreel, and it specifically mentions that he saw Jibreel alayhi salam at the head of the army of the angels, nakasa ala aqibay, he turned around and started to run from the battlefield. And in fact, some of the narrations mention that he was the first one to run. Fakana awwal man harba yawma idhin, he was the first one to run from the battlefield on that day. Um, Ibn Kathir ta'ala also using this as an example that when Jibreel came or when the angels came, then shaitan ran away. He mentions the ayah from Surah Al-Isra, ayah number 81. That the truth came and uh, falsehood dispersed. Because falsehood was meant to disperse to begin with. It was, it was shaky, it was flimsy, it was weak to begin with. So... That basically tells a lot of the story of how the Quraysh, uh, the Quraysh prepared and departed from Makkah. Now a little bit about Ibn Ishaq mentions in his book some numbers about the Quraysh. There were 950 fighters with the Quraysh. So you hear there were about a thousand people, 950 of them were fighters. 50 other people were just there for cooking food. They had brought chefs with them, they had brought uh, entertainers with them, singers, musicians, all of this stuff. So there were about a thousand people, but 950 fighters they had brought. They had two, out of the 950, there were 200 cavalry. 200 cavalry, 200 uh, warriors or fighters that were riding on horses. So they had a cavalry of 200, 200 horses. And it goes on to mention that they had, you know, all these, uh, they had chefs and cooks and entertainers, musicians and singers and all this other stuff. And they had so many camels with them. Uh, some of the narrations mentioned that they had, um, some of the narrations mentioned that they had hundreds of camels with them. And one thing specifically that's mentioned by Umawi in one of the narrations, uh, Ibn Ishaq mentions this as, uh, Al-Waqidi, excuse me, he mentions this, that they had so many ca uh, camels with them, that as they were traveling, the, when they left Mecca, the first day that they camped, the first time that they stopped and they camped out, Abu Jahl sacrificed 10 camels. Abu Jahal sacrificed 10 camels, basically 10 camels to feed the entire army. And then the next day, uh, Umayyah bin Khalaf uh, fed the entire army with 9 camels. Suhail bin Amr the next day fell, uh, fed the entire army with 10 more camels. Um, and after that, Shaybat ibn Rabi'ah fed the entire army with 9 more camels. Um, Ujbat ibn Rabi'ah 
uh, fed the entire army the day after that with 10 more camels. This basically leads to about five days. On the sixth day of their journey and their travel, Abbas bin Abdul Muttalib, the uncle of the Prophet ﷺ, who was with the Quraysh in the Battle of Badr, and we'll be talking about him a little bit later, then he fed the entire army with 10 more camels. Um, after that, Abu al-Bukhtari, he fed the entire army with 10 more camels. Um, and after that point on, that was about the first week. So they traveled for about a week until they reached the place near Badr. So it took them about a week to make it out close to the area of Badr. And each day, 10 camels were sacrificed or killed and fed to the entire army. So just in the first week, they had consumed nearly 70 camels. So you can imagine just the sheer number of animals that they had brought with them. And it mentions that from that point on forward, the rations that they had, um, that is what basically they lived off of, or they were using for food and sustenance of everybody in the army for the remaining number of days. This is what was going on with the Quraysh. Now if we switch over to the side of the Muslims in Medina, what transpired and what happens in Medina? So the Prophet of Allah initially just put the word out that we are going to pursue the caravan of Abu Sufyan. So he put the word out and you know, close to about 300 people uh, were ready to go with the Prophet About 210 of the 300 um, were from the Ansar. Some narrations even mentioned that 230 of them were from the Ansar. So there were about 70 some muhajirun, 71, 72 muhajirun. The remaining of the 313 were from the uh, Ansar. So the bulk and the majority of the people who participated in the Battle of Badr were from the Ansar. So about 313 people they leave. Now, they did take some equipment with them, but there's two things. Number one, initially they were just going out to intercept the caravan, so they didn't even worry about taking a lot of weapons and things like that with them. Number two was the fact that they really didn't even have much to begin with. The Muslims didn't have much. The Ansar, the Muslims of Medina, were simple folk. They were farmers. The Muhajirun who had come from Mecca had basically arrived in Medina in a similar state as to what we would consider refugees, where they had fled their homes and ran, and they arrived in Medina empty-handed. So the Muslims in Medina didn't have much to begin with. When the Prophet ﷺ leaves Medina, Al-Madinatul Munawwara, when he leaves there with the 313 Sahaba, he appoints Abdullah bin Ummi Maktoum. Abdullah ibn Ummi Maktoum, he appoints him to lead the prayer in Medina in his absence. Alright, why is that so profound? Who is Abdullah bin Umi Maktoum? That Abdullah bin Umi Maktoum is a senior Sahabi, he's older in age, number one. Him and his mother accepted Islam back in the early days of Mecca. So he has a lot of, not just seniority in age, but he has seniority in terms of that he's an early, he's from the early days of Mecca. Number three, he was sent along with Musa bin Umair before the Hijrah to Medina by the Prophet ﷺ to the city of Medina. So when 
Musa bin Umair went to Medina to go preach to the people in Medina and start, you know, spreading Islam in Medina because the Prophet ﷺ found a safe haven for Muslims to start migrating to and he was hopeful that he would be given the command by Allah to migrate there and establish the community there. He sent Musa bin Umair ahead to start teaching and spreading Islam over there along with Musa bin Umair because Musa bin Umair was a young man, very knowledgeable, very passionate, very devout, but he was a young man. So the Prophet ﷺ sent a senior along with him to kind of guide him and uh, to, to guide him and mentor him if you will and that elderly person to mentor Musa bin Umayr was none other than Abdullah bin Umayr Maktoum so this is a man who has a uh, uh, an amazing track record. He has a long resume in terms of his service to the deen. And this is why the Prophet ﷺ had the type of confidence in him that he did when that, the, that when the Prophet ﷺ is leaving Medina, he leaves uh, Abdullah bin Umi Maktoum to lead the prayer in Medina. Now, the most obvious thing that many people know about Abdullah ibn Umi Maktoum is that he was blind. Abdullah ibn Umi Maktoum was blind. And in fact, the word Maktoum, Katama Maktoum, was used in the Arabic language not just for an ordinary blind person, but it was used for somebody who was born blind. It was used for somebody who was born blind. Alright, that this person, it's not that they lost their eyesight in an accident or due to illness or later on in old age or something like that. No, they were born blind. They were blind their entire life. And that's why he's called Abdullah ibn Ummi Maktoum. His mother was known as the father, uh, the, the, the mother of Maktoum. The mother of the one who was born blind. So this was kind of his identity. This was how he was known to the community before Islam. Um, and so Abdullah ibn Ummi Maktoum radiallahu ta'ala anhu was blind. And just a little bit of a pause here. Oh, and I forgot to mention another thing on the, again, the, I guess you can say, to the credit of Abdullah bin Umi Maktoum. He was appointed by the Prophet ﷺ, along with Bilal radiallahu ta'ala anhu, as one of the mu'adhins of Medina. So we know Bilal radiallahu ta'ala anhu was a famous mu'adhin. The other mu'adhin by the side of Bilal radiallahu anhu was Abdullah bin Umi Maktoum. And now that the Prophet ﷺ is going out for the Battle of Badr, He's appointing Abdullah bin Umi Maktoum as the Imam to lead the prayer. And that obviously everybody can, you know, do kind of like figure it out for themselves that how profound that is and what that teaches us about our deen and how we value people and what is merit in Islam. Right, that Islam values character, Islam values iman, Islam values faith and belief and good action and good character and good conduct and hard work and dedication and devotion and sacrifice above everything else. That it, it, the Prophet ﷺ, he, you know, made a very powerful point when he appointed people like Bilal radiallahu anhu and Abdullah bin Umi Maktoum to the very visible leadership positions of the Mu'addin and making Abdullah bin Umi Maktoum lead the prayer in his absence, be the backup imam for the Prophet Can you imagine standing on the musalla the Prophet stood on? Right? It was very powerful. The first time Abu Bakr radiallahu ta'ala anhu stood on that musalla, he started shaking and crying. He wasn't able to stand there. He started shaking and crying, that I stand where the Prophet ﷺ leads from, speaks from? I can't. It was a huge responsibility, very powerful. And everybody was cognizant of that. And, think, and what that teaches us, 
that a lot of times, and this is not to discount the fact that there are, there is such a thing as strategy and different, you know, ways to improve on what we do things. Yes, the Prophet ﷺ also had a very, you know, thoughtful, a very wise, a very intelligent strategy. The Prophet ﷺ did use, did use people, meaning he did apply people, he did utilize people and apply people um, based on what they were good at. He put people in a position to succeed. And he put people in a position where they were able to contribute the most to the community. But at the same time, the Prophet ﷺ implements this type of a measure, where somebody who has such a long track record of such un amazing service to the deen, that the Prophet ﷺ appoints appoint him to leadership in spite of the obvious difficulty and the assistance that he would require due to the simple fact that he's blind. So he would require somebody's assistance. He can't look at the sun and know that prayer time is coming. He has to be told, it's time for salah, you need to call adhan. He needs somebody to help him kind of walk to the masjid maybe. Now that he's going there, he needs somebody to kind of help him stand in the right place, in the first saf, in the middle to call the iqamah. He needs somebody to help him exactly stand at the right place to be able to lead the prayer. I mean, consider these facts. But the Prophet ﷺ is teaching us that yes, all these other things that we might learn in you know, organizational development and business strategy and all these other things that we study and that we implement, they're all great and fantastic, but not at the, expensive, not at the expense of the primary consideration. And that is, what do we value people based on? Right, that their merit and their devotion and their dedication and their sincerity that is ultimately the greatest quality and the greatest qualification any human being can have. And the Prophet ﷺ demonstrated it here. So he led by example, he taught us practically with his own community. I mean think about it, the Prophet ﷺ's own family, so many of his loved ones are there. Right, so he appointed Abdullah bin Umi Maktoub to lead the prayer in his absence. And then they went forward, once they departed, then they reached the place of Rawha. They reached a place of Roha, which was slightly outside of Medina. The Prophet ﷺ sent back Abu Lubaba. Abu Lubaba radiallahu ta'ala anhu. He's, there's some discussion about what is his name. Some say his name was Bashir ibn al-Mundhir. The thing is that Abu Lubaba was primarily known as Abu Lubaba. Like his kunniya just became so popular that people actually forgot his name. People didn't remember what his name was. He was just known by that title. Abu Lubaba, and again we'll talk about this later on in the seerah, but he was a very special person as well. He was one of the people who had come to Mecca during the season of Hajj and given the oath of allegiance to the Prophet ﷺ at the time of the Bay'ah at the Aqaba, the Aqaba Tuthaniya, right? The second time when the Ansar from Medina came and gave the oath of allegiance to the Prophet ﷺ, he was in that gathering. Uh, there was about 70 some odd people. Number two, the Prophet ﷺ out of that gathering had appointed 12 community leaders and organizers in Medina for the Muslim community. And Abu Lubaba was one of those 12. So this is somebody the Prophet ﷺ had a lot of trust in. And the Prophet ﷺ used to rely and depend on him a lot. Um, there's a little incident that we'll talk about later in the seerah that during the, the issue with Banu Quraidha after the Battle of the Trench, the Battle of the Khandaq, he accidentally basically let the information slip that the Prophet ﷺ was going to be taking action against Banu Quraidha because they had 
broken their treaty with the Muslims and tried to attack uh, Medina while the Muslims were busy dealing with the Battle of the Trench. And so due to this uh, backstabbing of theirs, the Prophet ﷺ was commanded by Allah, Jibreel ﷺ came to the Prophet ﷺ and said, Allah has commanded you to go and handle Banu Quraidha. And so when the Prophet ﷺ was leaving and started assembling them, Abu Lubaba accidentally let it slip to somebody who took the information to Banu Quraidha that the Prophet ﷺ is coming to deal with y'all. And that's how they were able to retreat into their fort. They laid siege to the fort and eventually they were able to have them surrender. But he let that information slip. What happened as a consequence of that was, he realized his error and his mistake. He comes to the Prophet ﷺ himself afterwards and confesses and says, I messed up, O Messenger of Allah, I did this by accident. And the Prophet ﷺ didn't necessarily hold it against him. But what Abu Lubaba, because he was so regretful and remorseful, he went and called one of his family members and told him to tie him to one of the pillars of the masjid of the Prophet ﷺ. He told him to tie him to one of the pillars of the masjid uh, of the Prophet ﷺ. Um, and that pillar uh, till today is actually still known and identified um, as the pillar of Abu Lubaba, Sariya to Abu Lubaba. So he, was t he tied him, had himself tied to one of the pillars in the masjid of the Prophet ﷺ. And he said, I will not eat, I will not drink, I will not rest, I will not release myself from here until Allah forgives me and the Prophet ﷺ, you know, uh, until Allah forgives me. What happened was that and one of his family members used to come and basically open him up, untie him at the time of every prayer. So at every prayer time, one of his relatives would come and open him up and he would pray and then they would, he would have them tie him back up to the pillar as like a tawbah and a repentance. He was just so distraught about what he had, what, what he had done until the point where he fainted due to not eating and drinking after a few days. And uh, the Prophet ﷺ basically said that, you know, uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has forgiven you. Allah has forgiven you. Um, and he said, no, I will not leave here until the Prophet ﷺ with his own hands comes and he unties me. And then the Prophet ﷺ went and untied him with his own hands. And that's basically uh, one of the incidents that displays Abu Lubaba was a man of, just, uh, of such sincerity. And the Prophet ﷺ had, this is why he had so much trust in him. Nevertheless, when they reached the place of Ar-Rawha, the Prophet ﷺ sent Abu Lubaba back to Medina and said, Abdullah bin Umi Maktoum will take care of the masjid, he will lead the prayer, but you will be in charge of just the city of Medina. Like you will keep watch over the city of Medina for me because I trust you. And Abu Lubaba was also an Ansari. He was in, from Aus, he was an OC and Ansari. So what that means is he was a native of Medina. So he knew Medina inside out. And he knew everyone in Medina and he knew everyone outside of Medina. And being a leader of the tribe of Aus, he had connections. So the Prophet ﷺ said, you keep watch over Medina while I'm gone. So he sent him back. So that's basically how Medina was looked after. And then the Prophet ﷺ head out with the Sahaba. The other thing was that Musab bin Umayr radiallahu ta'ala anhu was given the flag of the entire army. And it was a white flag. It was a white flag. Liwa Abiyad. Alright, so he was given a white flag, told to write at the front of the army, and he was kind of the flag bearer of the entire army. And again, Musab bin Umayr radiallahu ta'ala anhu wasn't... Again, we don't say this disparagingly, uh, may Allah protect us and forgive us, we don't say this disparagingly, but generally speaking and comparatively, relatively speaking, in that community, Musab bin Umayr was not known as a warrior. 
There were people like Zubair ibn al-Awwam, Sa'ad bin Abi Waqas, right? Sa'ad bin Mu'adh. Like these, these were warriors. Alright, these were fighters. Hamza bin Abdul Muttalib. Right? These are fighters. These are warriors. Ali bin Abi Talib. Musa bin Umair was not a warrior. Musa bin Umair radiallahu ta'ala, if you remember a little bit about his story, he's a young man. He's primarily, if you want to even describe what he was after Islam, he would more so be like a scholar and a teacher from amongst the Sahaba. Like he was a devout student of the Prophet particularly of the Qur'an. He was like a, he was a Qur'an teacher, if you will. Alright, he was a Qur'an teacher. And he was a student of the Prophet So his primary uh, contribution was knowledge and da'wah. He was a da'i. And that's why the Prophet ﷺ had sent him to Medina to preach Islam there. So he's more of a, of a, of a student, uh, a scholar, a da'i. That's who he is, right? And even in his background in Mecca, he didn't grow up like fighting in battles and things like that. He was the son of one of the wealthiest people in Mecca. So he actually grew up, you know, in the lap of luxury. So he's lived a life of luxury. He's sacrificed a lot since then. But again, his primary focus is, you know, learning and teaching and da'wah, preaching. Learning, teaching and preaching. That's his contribution focus. So he's not necessarily the warrior that the flag is put in his hand. But again, the Prophet ﷺ recognizes the fact that he is a leader in our community. He is a major contributor to our community. In fact, many of these Ansar who are here participating and traveling with us, many of them accepted Islam on his hands. He converted, some narrations mentioned, 500 people in Medina before the arrival of the Prophet ﷺ. Right? So this is, again, you see the Prophet ﷺ honoring somebody based on their merits. So then on either side of the Prophet ﷺ, he had two people who were walking, traveling with the Prophet ﷺ, carrying uh, black flags, like two smaller black banners, if you will. And one was Ali bin Abi Talib, and the other one was Sa'ad bin Mu'adh from the Ansar. So that was to kind of help the Sahaba know where the Prophet ﷺ was at all times. Right? So he had Ali bin Abi Talib, Sa'ad bin Mu'adh on either side of him with these black banners. Um, and then at the front, holding the white flag the, of the entire army, the raya, uh, was Musa bin Umair radiallahu ta'ala anhu. The narrations mentioned that in the entire army of the Muslims, there were only uh, two horses. There was only two horses. And those two horses uh, were, were ridden by Musa bin Umair, who used to alternate with Zubair ibn al-Awam, and the other one was with Miqdad ibn al-Aswad. So that's why some of the narrations say that it was Musa bin Umair, some say it was Zubair ibn al-Awam, some say it was Miqdad bin Aswad, that basically between these three and a fourth one that's also mentioned is Sa'ad bin Khaythama. So between these four Sahaba, they were the ones sharing those two horses, and those two horses were at the front of the army, so to kind of lead the entire army. There were about um, 60 camels um, between, or 70 camels, excuse me, there were about 70 camels between 313 people. And the, what that basically meant was there was about three to four people per camel. Some people were just walking on foot, but nevertheless the Prophet ﷺ had paired people up in groups of three and four to take turns riding the camel. 
Um, and so the camels were basically lined up together and some of the camels would be tied to one another to kind of keep the group together and kind of keep the flow of the army going. The Prophet of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. this is something very interesting. Abu Lubaba and Ali bin Abi Talib, Abdullah bin Mas'ud radiallahu ta'ala relates in a narration mentioned by Imam Ahmad in his Musnad that the Prophet ﷺ, his two people with him that were sharing a camel were Abu Lubaba and Ali bin Abi Talib And so day three were supposed to share one camel, take turns riding one camel. فَكَانَتْ عُقْبَةُ رَسُولِ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وسلم. So the Prophet ﷺ, they said, you start off. So the Prophet ﷺ started riding the camel. And when it was time for people to stop, the whole army kind of stopped, and to make this change, to make the switch, between who would get to ride the camel now, the Prophet ﷺ stopped. فَقَالَ نَحْنُ نَمْشِي عَنْكَ They said, Ya Rasulullah, we will walk your portion. Meaning, we'll keep walking, you keep riding. Of course, as you would with the Messenger ﷺ. The Prophet ﷺ, he responds to them by saying, ma antuma bi aqwa minni. He said, first of all, I'm in better shape than both of you put together. Ma antuma bi aqwa minni. I'm in better shape than both of you put together. Wala ana bi aghna anil ajri minkuma. And he said that I am, I am in just in need as reward as both of you are. Now again, we know that that's not literally true, the second part. The first part is, the second part is not literally true, meaning that the Prophet ﷺ is the aghfira laka Allahumma taqaddama min dhambika wa ma ta'akhar. He is forgiven from before, he is Habibu Rabbil Alameen, he is the beloved of God. Right, there's no accountability, meaning there's no ajr and reward and all these things with the Prophet ﷺ. But again, the Prophet ﷺ is teaching us a lesson. You see the humility of the Prophet ﷺ. And the Prophet ﷺ is also teaching for future generations until our time that how a leader needs to conduct himself with his subordinates, with the people that are following him, with the people that he's in charge of. He needs to see himself at, the, at their level. And he needs to understand that just because one person is promoted to the position of leadership, that doesn't mean that that person is some way, somehow more, you know, religious or pious or dignified by Allah, or automatically receives or achieves some type of protected status, not at all. So the Prophet ﷺ responds to them by saying, ma antuma bi aqwa minni, neither one of you is, in, is stronger than me. Neither one of you is in better shape than me. And I need reward just as much as uh, the next guy. Like just as much as both of you do. So no, I will walk because I'm perfectly fine. Why wouldn't I walk? And number two, I will allow somebody else to ride and get some rest because I will get the reward of that. Right, so we see this beautiful conduct and character by the Prophet ﷺ. And this is, gee, again, just a couple of things that we've already talked about in terms of how the Prophet ﷺ appoints Abdullah bin Umi Maktoum. How the Prophet ﷺ has so much strategy in terms of who he leaves in charge in Medina with Abu Lubaba. How the Prophet ﷺ hands the flag to Musa bin Umayr. How the Prophet ﷺ interacts with, you know, Ali bin Abi Talib is almost like a... Um, he's almost like a, a, a child to the Prophet ﷺ in the sense that Ali bin Abi Talib grew up in the home of the Prophet ﷺ. The Prophet ﷺ raised him. But for the Prophet ﷺ to deal with him so, in such a humble manner, in such a humble manner, it even goes to show you that even in terms of like within family dynamics, parents, 
that the, the most effective way for you to communicate even with your kids is through humility. It's through humility. Be humble. Be generous. Be kind. And that's a lot more effective and a much better way to teach a lesson than to have to constantly state your superiority and your authority. When you have to remind somebody of your authority, you have no authority. Right? And so we see just from here a few things that we've talked about today. You see the profound benefit in setting the life of the Prophet. And how much there is for us to learn and how much we can benefit from it. So going forward, um, one of the things that Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha specifically mentioned, and this again shows kind of the war strategy of the Prophet that a lot of the camels, they had about 70 camels in the army, a lot of the camels that they had, normally people, when they had their camels out for grazing, so in order to be able to kind of know that the camels are around, or when the camels go out to graze, they would tie bells around the neck of the camel. So they could hear the camels kind of like walking around, coming and going and stuff. You know, like people will do with animals. Um, but when they set out for the arm, for, for, for the battle of Badr, the Prophet ﷺ had them remove the bells from the necks of the camel. And the, the scholars mention a couple of things. Number one, this is war strategy, of course. You don't show up arriving, uh, announcing kind of your arrival, number one. Number two, the Prophet ﷺ at the same time did not want to create that semblance of, you know, uh, celebration and uh, arrogance and partying. Like the Quraysh. Now you look at the Quraysh. The Quraysh are bringing entertainers. Professional entertainers that they've hired and they brought with them. To sing and play music and things like that. Versus on the other side, the Prophet ﷺ like even cut the bells from the necks of the camels. And the Prophet ﷺ would actually have the Sahaba while they were riding the animals in the battlefield. This is narrated and that we're going to learn about in the seerah going forward from here. The Prophet ﷺ would have them doing dhikr. The Prophet ﷺ would have them making dua. In fact, it's noted about the Prophet ﷺ while riding his animal. And this is in our fiqh. This is an authentically... Uh, an authentically uh, uh, this authentic narration that the Prophet ﷺ would pray nawafil on his animal while riding in the battlefield. Even though necessarily he wasn't faced in the direction of the qibla, but because if, it, if, you're in, if you're riding on an animal, you're on the transportation, right? And these are nafil prayers, not fara'id, not mandatory prayers, but optional prayers, even riding on the animal, whatever direction it's moving in, the Prophet ﷺ would pray his nawafil. Meaning it's better than some other activity, which might be wasting time or, you know, gossiping or talking unnecessary things or singing or whatever else or telling jokes or whatever else people would do. The Prophet ﷺ was even praying nawafil. And so again, um, the Prophet ﷺ, the scholars mentioned one of the benefits of this was, the Prophet ﷺ didn't want them, you know, kind of like uh, singing songs and playing bells and these types of things. But he wanted them engaging in productive activity. And how we kind of see with an army, that even when they kind of march, sometimes they like to kind of read or chant something together. Like armies will have like songs and things like that that they'll sing. The Prophet ﷺ, he allowed the Sahaba to do it, but again, it was, it was something that was beneficial. Like the Sahaba are noted to have been saying, reciting, kind of chanting together in the while they were marching into battle. And the Prophet heard them and did not uh, prevent them, meaning he approved of it. One narration they were saying, نَحْنُ الَّذِينَ بَايَعُوا مُحَمَّدًا عَلَى الْجِهَادِ مَا بَقِينَا أَبَدًا We are the ones who have given the oath of allegiance to Muhammad wasallam. Um, that we will fight in the path of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for as long as we are needed. 
another time they were saying um, uh, Allahumma la aisha illa aishu al-akhirah faghfir lil-ansari wal-muhajara that they were saying that uh, oh Allah there is no life but the life of the hereafter so forgive the ansar and the muhajireen forgive all the sahaba right so this is just something that Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha relates that Amara Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam bil-ijras bil-ajras an tuqta'a min a'anaq al-ibli yawm badr wa hadha ala shart al-shaykh sahihain inama rawahu al-nasai in some other narrations it also mentions that then it goes on to mention basically the fact that the route the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam took with the Sahaba, with the Muslims, along on the way to the Battle of Badr. And this is where we learn something about the Prophet ﷺ. And I have mentioned this earlier before. There's a hadith of the Prophet ﷺ where he says, Al-harbu khuda'a. War is strategy. War is strategy. Alright, and the word khuda'a also means deception. Meaning war is strategic, war is strategy. So if you have to practice a little trickery, if you have to practice some strategy, then war is the place to do it, and it's allowed to do it at war. And so one of the things the Prophet ﷺ did was, he initially started off traveling in one direction, and then a little bit, once they got a little bit outside of Medina, the Prophet ﷺ changed the direction of the army, and started marching in another direction, until the Prophet ﷺ reached the place where he paused, and that's where he had a very serious conversation with the Sahaba radiallahu ta'ala anhum, um, one of the things I wanted to mention uh, that I came across, it's very interesting. Um, while they were, when they first set out from Medina and they were traveling, the Prophet ﷺ sent out two companions, two sahaba, to go ahead and scout and kind of search the area and look and see if they could find out any information about Abu Sufyan and his caravan. So he sent them out. Similarly, as they were traveling, if they came across anyone, if they came across anyone, they would stop and they would check with them. They would ask them, have you seen anybody coming through here? Have you heard about anyone coming through here? So when, the, um, when, they were, when they stopped at one of these places to inquire from somebody, and they stopped and they saw a man and he was grazing, he was a Bedouin man. So the Bedouins were kind of harsh in their manner of speech and stuff like that. So they saw a Bedouin man and he was, you know, grazing some of his camels. And um, so the Sahaba stopped him and they said, فَسَأَلُوهُ عَنِ النَّاسِ They asked him, do you have any information about people coming through here? فَلَمْ يَجِدُوا عِنْدَهُ خَبْرًا He didn't know anything. فَقَالَ لَهُ النَّاسُ سَلِّمْ عَلَى رَسُولَ اللَّهِ So some of the companions, the Prophet walked up while they were inquiring from this person, trying to get some information from him. The Prophet walked up like, what happened? Did you talk to him? Does he know anything? So they, you know, the Sahaba radiallahu ta'ala anhu, whenever the Prophet came, of course they displayed that adab and respect. So they would all say salam to the Prophet and kind of like turn their attention towards him. So they all said salam to the Prophet when he walked up. So they told the man, this Bedouin, salim ala Rasulillah And they used the word Rasulillah, the messenger of God. Which is, means a big deal in Arabic. Even if you're not Muslim, you understand that. As a Bedouin, as an ancient Arab, you understand that. And it means something big, something huge. So he says, he responds to them, he doesn't say salam, he says, awafikum Rasulullah? The messenger of God is amongst y'all, you people? And they said, naam. And they said, yes, fasallim alayh. 
So say salam to him. Like stop asking stupid questions. Say salam to him. So he says, "La in kunta Rasul Allahi sallallahu alaihi wasallam." He looks at the Prophet sallallahu and he says, "If you are the messenger of the God, he says, 'Fa'akhbini amma fi batni naqati hadhi.' Then you tell me what is in the belly of this she camel of mine." What he meant was he pointed to a she camel of his that was pregnant. He pointed to a pregnant she-camel and he said, tell me what is in its belly, meaning is it a male or a female? Is the she-camel going to give birth to a male child, offspring or a female? So he kind of challenges and there's a little bit of like a tone of, you know, maybe mockery. And the Bedouins were like that, they were just really gruff people and he just kind of said that because he didn't like them telling you know, them like, say salam, say salam, say salam. So he got kind of aggravated and he goes, hey, if you are the messenger of God like all your people say, why don't you tell me what, what, what gender is in the belly of the she-camel of mine? Salma ibn Salama, one of the companions of the Prophet ﷺ, he didn't take too kindly to the man's comments and he said, لا تسأل رسول الله وأقبل عليه فأنا أخبرك عن ذلك. Alright? He says, لا تسأل رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم. He says, لا تسأل رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم وأقبل عليه. Rather talk to me. Don't ask the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم these type of disrespectful questions. Talk to me. فأنا أخبرك عن ذلك. I'll tell you what's in the belly of your she camel. Now again, I apologize. I'm gonna try to state this as appropriately as I can. He basically doesn't say something very nice to him. He says something kind of obscene to him. He basically says uh, in Arabic, "Nazota aleha fafi batniha minka sakhlatun." Very unfortunate. He says that you have had intimate relations with your animal, um, so your she camel is carrying your you know, um, demented offspring, right? Um, it's, it's a way of cursing somebody, right? And, and again, so let's, let's think about this. We obviously see that that's problematic. But we also see that if we were sitting by the side of the Prophet and somebody starts getting in the Prophet's face and disrespecting him, that might be the least of what we do, right? There's just that, there's that response, right? Now, how does the Prophet ﷺ handle something like this? How would one of us handle something like that? Somebody comes up to you and says something, gets in your face, says something disrespectful to you, and one of your buddies, or even more so when maybe you're now in a leader, le- position of leadership, one of your followers, one of your congregants, one of your students, right, and it kind of goes and gets in his face and says something really offensive to him, right? How, how, how do we respond? Do we kind of feel like, yeah, that's what happens. You got anything else to say, smart guy? Right? We, we kind of like, you know, there's a little bit of, it swells us up a little bit. Like, yeah, I got my posse. Right? I have my people. You want to mess with me? You got to mess with them. Right? There's a little bit of that, that, that arrogance. What, how did the Prophet ﷺ handle this situation? He said, ma, ma. And in classical Arabic, that literally means, shut your mouth. Mah means, be quiet right now. Mah. Like you don't even like say the word like, la tatakallam. Please do not speak. No, no, no. 
Uskut, please be quiet. No, 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 no. He said, Mah, shut up. The Prophet reprimanded his own companion. Who's defending the Prophet Mah, be quiet. Hey, what's your problem? The Prophet says to his own companion, who's defending him, Hey, 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 don't talk to people like that. Mah. And then the Prophet says, Afhashta ala rajul. You have disrespected this man. You have spoken vulgarly to this man. And the Prophet ﷺ makes the Sahabi apologize to that man. Just a random Bedouin. Wandering around in the middle of the desert. With, you know, just grazing some camels. He's of no consequence to anybody. But the Prophet ﷺ does not tolerate this type of behavior, disrespect. And this is fundamentally rooted in the understanding that whether we are preaching or whether we're teaching or whether we're traveling or whether we're going out even for battle, our objective is always very, very clear. We are going to call people to Allah. We are going to call people to Allah. There's numerous hadith where the Prophet ﷺ tells the Sahaba, even in the battlefield, we are here first, excuse me, first and foremost. When the Prophet ﷺ sent Sahaba out into battles later on, he always you know, advised them before they left that first and foremost you go there and you invite them to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's our primary objective. And how can you be inviting people to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala when this is how you speak to people? Yes, yeah, so what he got a little disrespectful with me, or even with you. But you have to abide by, you have to conduct yourself by a higher standard. This is not acceptable in any way, shape, or form. So the Prophet ﷺ, basically this was something that kind of happened on the way until they continue traveling, um, uh, until they reach um, a particular place uh, that is near the place of the Battle of Badr. And uh, over there, the Prophet ﷺ basically stops and has a meeting. The Prophet ﷺ stops and has a meeting. And um, I'm going to go ahead and stop here because Salat al-Isha time is almost here. It's almost time for the Adhan. Um, but what we'll talk about is why did they have to have a meeting? They had to have a meeting because there was a contract that the Prophet ﷺ already had in place with the people of Medina. The Ansar, when the Muhajirun, when the Muslims of Mecca and the Prophet ﷺ came to Medina, they had a contract. They had a contract. That made it very clear in what situations we will fight and in what situations we will not fight. So the Prophet ﷺ, when he realized that we're not just going to intercept the caravan anymore. There's an army on its way. And we're about to fight. So the Prophet ﷺ had a meeting to discuss the terms of their contract and to figure out exactly what they wanted to do and what they were going to do. So we'll talk about the terms of the contract and we'll talk about the entire meeting and what was the outcome of the meeting insha'Allah in the next session. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant us all the ability, the tawfiq to practice everything that was said and heard. Um, and particularly, uh, again, we see the beautiful, profound lessons that we can implement in so many aspects of our life. From the practice and the precedent of the Prophet ﷺ, this is the goal, this is the objective, this is part of the benefit 
of studying the life of the Prophet ﷺ. So I hope everyone is able to see that and benefit from that, inshallah, about, uh, implement those lessons and be able to take that, those same lessons to other people as well. Uh, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accept from all of us. Subhanallah wa bihamdihi, subhanakallahum bihamdik. Nashadu wa la ilaha illa anta, nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk.